Greetings and welcome to the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast. Joining us on this episode is Dr. Rishi Manchanda, the president and founder of Health Begins. Dr. Manchanda is a physician, author, and healthcare leader whose passion is developing solutions and strategies to improve health outcomes in communities where environmental factors present significant challenges to public health. We'll discuss all that and more with Dr. Manchanda, but first, let's welcome him to the program. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely, and we're glad that you could make a few moments for us today. Let's dive right in. Over the course of your career, you've worked with marginalized groups in impoverished communities, homeless veterans, and other folks who perhaps have been overlooked or forgotten by society. I wonder what drew you to that work and how those experiences have shaped the course and evolution of your career outlook towards a pretty intent focus on tackling the social factors that are barriers to health for so many people. Yeah, thanks, Julian. Um, as a child of immigrants, I've um, been exposed to a lot of different uh, backgrounds, uh, including my parents' own uh, culture in their home country, as well as here in the U.S., and we moved around quite a bit growing up as well. And I think those were formative experiences that exposed me to the fact that there's always the other, that um, whatever our own experiences are, there's always um, an important need to understand that others sometimes don't have either the same privileges and certainly sometimes go through their own version of hardships. Uh, that, um, with a whole host of other influences, led me to pursue a career in healthcare and particularly devote myself to caring for those who are most underserved, those who are most uh, overlooked, as you said. And I have to say that I've had, I can attest to the fact that it's been an incredible privilege to have done that type of work and to continue to, continue to do that work because uh, the not only of the personal rewards that I gain in, in providing service one-on-one with individuals, but because the lessons that, that I learn every day from the people I've had the privilege of serving. Uh, those who are the poorest among us, those who have uh, the hardest obstacles to face, often have um, the most resourcefulness, the most dignity, and sometimes the most wisdom about how to find solutions to the problems at an individual level and a community level. Well, that's really important perspective, as you said, coming from a background of uh, a child of, of immigrants and, and so really having that outlook on on folks who perhaps haven't had benefits or breaks. So um, it's really interesting to hear you share that and, and appreciate that that outlook. Uh, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the notion of upstreaming, which I think is sort of central to the work that you do. I wonder if you could, for the benefit of our audience, define what upstreaming means as it relates to healthcare and the specific kind of work that you do. I think across the country in, in clinics and hospitals um, in, in Virginia and across many states, the frontline clinicians, physicians, nurses, social workers, many others, have always known that our patients' lives are impacted by the forces outside the walls of the clinic, even outside the purview of the prescriptions or the pills that provide. So where somebody lives, whether they have a fridge to store their insulin uh, to control their diabetes, oftentimes has a profound impact on their ability to self-manage that diabetes in a way that we have to be aware of. We've always known as frontline uh, healthcare professionals that upstream issues, things up, upstream of the encounter in the doctor's office or in the hospital matter in our patients' lives. What upstreamism talks about, what it means to move upstream in the way I, I describe it, is to finally be able to do something about it. Uh, we've always known that these are problems, but often haven't had the ability to create systems um, or to build solutions with partners in the community to address those upstream problems for our individual patients as well as for the neighborhoods they live in. And now we finally have the opportunity to do so. That's what it means to move upstream. 
kind of seize the opportunity to apply their professional code of ethics as well as the rigor that we apply every day in our work finally now to address those upstream issues for our patients in order to improve outcomes. So we've mentioned social determinants and environmental factors as systemic inhibitions to improved public health or population health, to use the nom de rigueur in the healthcare community. At this moment, VHHA and the Virginia Department of Health are in the midst of a comprehensive population health initiative named Partnering for a Healthy Virginia. This work involves many stakeholders from multiple professional disciplines, which is appropriate considering that addressing social factors naturally involves healthcare folks and others with experience in so many additional professional sectors. These really aren't narrow, isolated issues. Yet, as population health work continues in Virginia and elsewhere, one of the issues that seems to crop up is appropriately defining exactly what population health is and what it means. So I'll put you on the spot here a little and ask Dr. Manchanda, how do you define population health as a term? It's a great question. It's been um, There's a lot of great experts who've weighed in on this. I'll tell you the way it, it uh, practically how I come to terms with this. In fact, we've gone so far as to create a glossary to help guide discussions in this space and improve the precision of the way we talk about these things with uh, with each other, especially with our partners. For me, there's a, a few different terms that are important. One is social determinants of health. You described the fact that that's the term that largely these days speak to those broad social environmental forces. Those are community-level phenomena. The, the way those community-level forces, whether we're talking about housing, affordability, or food insecurity, or transportation barriers, the way those manifest in the lives of our individual patients are better described as health-related social needs, as social needs for individuals. And a lot of us these days in the hospitals and health care especially are thinking about how to improve those social needs for individual patients. But of course, because of our need to increasingly understand the needs of defined patient populations, we're starting to use terms, and we've been using them for a while, of population health management. So in the healthcare context, especially as we partner up with public health and other stakeholders, the way we're talking about population health oftentimes is a defined set of individual patients, whether described by condition, by demographic, or even by payer mix. And so for us in the healthcare side, we're defining population health as the, popul- the health of the defined po- patient population. The, the folks in the public health world and our community health and colleagues will describe population health uh, differently. They'll push the boundaries and say it's not just the, uh, about the health of defined patient populations, uh, as a healthcare uh, audience might define it, but it's also the health of broad numbers of populations, regardless of which payer or which provider uh, they're seeing. It's the health of a community. And so one uh, summary way to think about this these days is to start thinking about the distinction between population health management, which is the work of hospitals with our partners, and the work of broad community health, which includes but is not limited to defined patient populations. That's a little bit of of an insight into some of the glossary that we're starting to organize uh, to help us describe these things a bit more precisely. Thank you for sharing that insight. You mentioned defined patient populations, and that's a great segue to uh, the next question I have for you. You recently spoke at the VHHA annual meeting, which focused on, as you just mentioned, social determinants of health. And during your remarks, you emphasized the importance of identifying a priority population and a specific social factor. That struck me as sort of a population health version of the idiom, don't bite off more than you can chew. In other words, set realistic goals and targeting solutions to legacy problems. 
If that indeed is your prescription, what advice can you offer to providers and others here in Virginia and elsewhere who are committed to addressing this very challenging work? Yeah, it can be very challenging. And one of the reasons it can be challenging is because the term social determinants of health is relatively new for many folks in healthcare, even though on the front lines, again, we've long known about the impact of upstream issues in our patients' lives. The term itself connotes a broad swath of issues that feel sometimes way outside of our purview. We ask ourselves, what's our role? Our first bit of advice is to be able to get on the same page, not just internally with our hospital colleagues and our clinic, uh, our outpatient-based colleagues in primary care, but also with our public health and and community-based organization partners. And the way to do that is to be able to set the table of the conversation by talking about a specific high-priority population. And that priority has to be meaningful not only for the healthcare side of the table, but for those at the table from public health and community health. So we put an example of diabetics. We then say, go ahead and uh, now let's take the best evidence that we have, whether uh, it's informed by available data or even our own experience, and start to identify at least one target social factor, one target social determinant of health for the community uh, that this population represents. For example, for diabetes, it could be food insecurity. That is important not because we're putting a value judgment about the uh, relative importance of food compared to, say, housing or other important social barriers that impact health, but it's important because if we don't pick a starting point, it's really difficult for us, whether in the healthcare side and especially with our partners in public health and community, to start to show improvement using continuous improvement methodologies. In fact, the same methodologies we found for driving change in our hospitals, which is quality improvement, continuous quality improvement, the overall change management strategies we've used to transform our hospitals and our clinics to be able to provide uh, medical records in electronic format or to create uh, patient-centered medical homes, uh, behavioral health integration. You, you name the transformation, and you, what we've always learned, of course, is that that transformation requires real change management strategy. And change management starts with actually getting specific, not biting off more than we can chew. And so that's the way we get started. The last point I'll make over you, Julian, that's really important is that that's a starting point, but it's not the ending point. It's necessary to start thinking about how we can collectively get on the same page about improving outcomes for diabetics with food insecurity. But what we're finding is that when we get folks on the same page, it becomes easier for us to identify our role relative to the role of public health and community. What we're seeing across the country is that when you partner for a healthier state, in this case, partnering for Healthy Virginia, there are so many aha moments that happen for the doctors and executives and nurses and others in hospitals. They recognize that they can actually lead when it comes to certain work for for example, high-need, high-cost patients who are coming in with a lot of admissions. But they can also play a role in partnering and even supporting other initiatives that, may f- that, that are outside of their own purview, the work that community organizations or public health is doing. And if everybody can figure out where they can lead, partner, and support each other for a defined population around a defined target social determinant, then we can finally see progress, momentum, and start rebalancing the kind of priorities in a way that promotes health. Well, thanks for for explaining that and sort of taking us through your thought process. I think it's really helpful and impactful for folks here in Virginia in the clinical community and beyond who are really intently looking at this and and are trying to address some of these social factors that, as we said, are can be barriers to to improved health. I want to shift here just a moment. At the outset of our conversation, I mentioned Health Begins, an organization you founded to help address some of these social barriers. Listeners can learn more about the organization and its mission online at www.healthbegins.org, the common spelling of both health and begins. 
In your own words, Dr. Manchanda, how would you describe the work that's being done by Health Begins and how it um, aligns with what we've discussed so far in our conversation today? Yeah, Julian, thanks for that. Um, I started Health Begins when I was working on the front lines of primary care in um, underserved communities and recognized that there was no professional home for those of us who were trying to move upstream with rigor. It grew into a training organization, and now what Health Begins does, especially over the past few years, is helping a large variety of hospitals and health systems, as well as payers, and of course those in the community, our partners, uh, to move upstream with rigor, to take some of the performance improvement and quality improvement methods, change management strategies that we've seen to be so effective in driving transformation, and apply all that expertise and experience to this particular challenge of how to move upstream in a way that can finally get us to uh, not just providing the best quality care to those patients when they're sick, but to figure out how we can address the conditions that make them sick in the first place. That's what drives Health Begins every day, and uh, we're, we're really proud to be able to partner up with organizations, including uh, VHHA and others, to do that work. Well, that's that's a very noble cause, and, and I'm glad to hear that you have confronted it and approached it head-on through Health Begins. I do appreciate you taking some time today to be with us uh, from your busy schedule. Before we go, we'll close with a question that we like to ask our guests on the VHHA Patients Come First podcast. It's one we borrow from a popular BBC program. And the question is this, Dr. Manjanda, if you were stranded on a deserted island, what one book and one album would you take with you? And we will spot you a copy of the religious text of your choice. So other than your preferred religious text, what one book and one album would you take with you to keep you company and pass the time? Mm. Um, I reread uh, the letter from a Birmingham jail is a recent thing. I just I read last night. A friend of mine forwarded me a copy of it, that, and I read it 20 years ago. So I, I would say that at this point because I find inspiration in what Martin Luther King wrote in a dark time for him personally in a way that uh, found a lot of light. Um, that was meaningful for him, but also for others. And so if I was on a desert island, I'd be looking for any sources of inspiration and light as possible. And a letter from a Birmingham, Birmingham jail was, uh, was, a, was a powerful part of American history. Um, in terms of the album, um, I'd want as much upbeat music as possible. So um, I have to say the most, most uh, albums I listen to these days are defined by my 11-year-old and 4-year-old at home. And so I, I'd probably want to think on that a bit more <laughs> and probably get a mixtape. <laughs> if I could cheat here. So instead of one album, I, I would put together a mixtape uh, uh, before I got stranded on the desert island, but it would include jazz, a good amount of uh, blues, <laughs> and then um, a few dance tunes in there uh, just to make sure that I was uh, able to keep myself occupied. Great question. Uh, I'm going to be thinking about this for hours to come, I'm sure. Well, feel free to uh, circle back and, and fill in the blank if you like. But listen, I do think, I don't think it's cheating. I think a mixtape, as long as it is contained within the confines of what would be commonly considered album length, I think probably still fits the bill. So I think we can I think we can give you a pass on that. And uh, Letters from a Birmingham Jail, that. on a more serious note, having also read Letters from a Birmingham Jail, it is a very powerful uh, piece of writing. So appreciate you sharing your, your thoughts and choices with us. And with that, that is going to conclude this episode of the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast. We want to thank Dr. Rishi Manchanda for joining us. And again, we'd like to remind you that if you'd like to learn more about Dr. Manchanda's work, you should visit Health Begins online, and that address again is www.healthbegins.org. Thanks for being with us today, sir. Thank you. Appreciate it. 
Well, that's going to do it for this episode of the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast. You can listen to this episode and previous episodes of the podcast through SoundCloud, Blueberry, or online at www.vhha.com. You can also send us questions, comments, feedback, or suggestions about future podcast episode guests using the email account pcfpodcast at vhha.com. Again, that address is pcfpodcast at vhha.com. We also encourage you to connect with us on social media, including Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. You can contact us through Twitter using the hashtag PatientsComeFirst, and our Twitter account is at VirginiaHHA. Thank you. Thank you.